When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Most software companies struggle with how to be better connected to the truth on the ground of their data. Meaning like, what are people actually buying and what are people actually doing inside the software? And then if you think about it as a software executive team, you're just in roll-up mode, right? Like dashboards, reports, and you tend to roll up all this stuff. Like on average, things look like this and you get into Excel and you you do your little trend lines and you try to determine these relationships. And what happens is it pulls you so far away from the truth that you end up with really bad information. You end up with really misleading information. If your head's in the oven and your feet are in a block of ice, on average, you're warm. And I think it's like that for software companies. In the executive team meeting, you rolled up and you're telling everybody you're warm. But the reality is like this guy's head's in the oven. And that other customer, you know, the feeder in the ice. And on average, it sounds reasonable. But when you take the on average and you put it against the reality, there is no average. And I think I see this over and over and over and over again, where somebody says, well, you know, on average, we sell these things. And then you go look at the data. And you're like, you don't sell that. You don't sell that at all. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. I think a lot of what we do is kind of challenging the sacred cows and the assumptions and maybe the stories that we tell ourselves that we think are representative of the customers at large. Maybe they really are just a one-off. And it's amazing how much the one-off customer who paid you very little and ended up just getting huge amounts of value become a really powerful story inside the organization that set the tone like everybody's doing that. And then you go look and you say, well, we just spent four hours talking about that. And you know, that's just one customer that represents 0.001% of your revenues. Like we're spending a lot of time solutioning one odd duck over here. It's hard because the data feels like it's at your fingertips, but it's not. That's what I think is kind of the bringing the science to the pricing first means you have to have some good tools to understand the truth on the ground and you really got to get onto the ground and if you get on the ground it's messy and there's you know skew lists that might be hundreds of unique skews all over the place and add-ons and little things here and there if you're a big company for a small company maybe it's relatively simpler but it's still kind of a, it always kind of gets away from you a little bit or you get into the data and it's like why are these net prices greater than our list prices. Oops, sorry, yeah, we made a mistake over there and you get into this other data and it's incomplete. Like it's just, to, to go in there means it, it's like the dark cave in Luke Skywalker, right? Like <laughs> nobody wants to go in and confront it, you know, but like that's right. what you, you have to kind of do or you don't really get to the stuff that matters. You're always operating in the world of metadata and summary data and averages and things that you think are real and they're not. It's a really tough problem. Let's dive into that problem. But before we do, give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself. 
I started my journey as a founder. So I built a software company in the late nineties, actually programmed the first three versions of the software before we had a development team. And then I got swapped to sales. So then I started to learn as a computer science grad. Yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't very good at sales, right? Like I needed the real, this was in my early twenties. I really needed to buckle down if we were going to live and die by our ability to sell, which wasn't very good when we started out. And so this would have been the early two thousands. And then along the way, I got my, you know what, handed to me in a monetization lesson that at the time I didn't know it was a monetization lesson, but it really upset me because we were transitioning to the cloud in 08 and one of our customers, so this is your, is your back then you can imagine if you built it and they came, that's kind of what the model, I know this was early agile. We were one of mm -hmm. the first agile adopters, but this is late nineties, early 2000s. And we did build a lot of stuff and other smarter ways of doing that hadn't quite become mainstream yet. So we, we built all this stuff and it turned out that customers loved it. And one customer in particular said, Hey, you carry a bunch of catalogs in your software. And this was ERP software for, you know, all, all kinds of interior and exterior products and, and all kinds of modules and stuff. And they said, you know, you're carrying interior products. And I sell appliances and you don't have an appliance catalog, but gee whiz, if you just go add a serial number as a little custom field up there, the whole software will work, you know, just right out of the box. And I thought, well, this is amazing because there's thousands and thousands of people that carry appliances. This is a whole new market segment for us. Hey, this is great. Whole new competitive set, et cetera. So I say to the product team, I just need the user defined field. And then I leave on the road and I come back months later and I'm excited to see the next rendition of the software. And out comes the demo. And I know I was supposed to be <laughs> excited, Kevin. I was horrified. So out came a whole entire module. You could build whatever field that you wanted. You could make it a drop down <laughs> list box. You could make it this, you could make it that. It was wired into our workflow engine. You could make it required. You could make it optional. It had typecasting. It had like, it was in all the, wow, it was amazing. And the whole time that I sat there, I thought <gasps> I could, I could, I could charge for that. Right. But all the customers are going to get that for free, just flowed right into the maintenance stream. We were in the cloud at that point, And that was kind of the assumption we made. And I, you know, look back at that time, this was during the market crash of 08 and, you know, we were struggling for revenue and that was just millions of dollars of mistakes like that. It's always a struggle for me. It's like, if I knew then what I know now, but then I would have still been there. Right. But I like where I'm at now. So maybe you tell yourself it happens for a reason, but it was a big mistake. I think that's part of this podcast, right? It's to share our experiences for others to learn from, to build better products in the future and to have the foresight, if possible, to avoid these situations or at least think about them differently. What did you do after that? I got to about 2013 and I decided I was, I, I didn't really like interior and exterior products and I needed to do something different and I wanted to come back to tech. I yeah. interviewed for a position heading a software company here in Charlotte. And then we had hired software pricing partners in 08 to help us do our monetization strategy and make the transition to the cloud. And I got a great appreciation for the science of, of what was under the hood and what they did. And it was really just one of those random calls and the team here was looking for another partner. And I, on the way to the interview was just like, should, should we be having that conversation? And I thought, why did I just say that? Like, that would be a really weird career change. And one thing led to another. And then I took over the practice with the partners here in 2018. One of the things that we wanted to do was, or that I wanted to do, which now I get a much bigger vote 
because <laughs> back then not everybody wanted to do this is, is the software platform. And so we get to kind of geek out in an AWS serverless environment and build all the tools that we dreamed that we would have had as software company executives to manage and control pricing for our clients. And how do you optimize that? And how do you make more money? And, and what kinds of algorithms do you bring to bear on that? And how do you not take in so much data that it's misleading, but just the right amount of data. So that it's right. And then how do you get to the truth on the ground and how do you see that very quickly? And those tools, you know, bring us out of Excel, which I hate. It's like, I love it in the sense that you can model anything, but I hate it because nobody can understand what the hell you did in an Excel spreadsheet if it has like more than one tab. And so we just were able to kind of meld the software background and the pricing discipline together. And so we're a bit of a hybrid, you know, we have a consultancy, plus we have a very powerful set of tools and a software platform to manage all of this. And everything that we do is on the intersection of pricing and selling. You know, how do you move a transaction more effectively? How, how do we not geek out and build some fun model that the salespeople and the, and the partners are going to be like, what in the heck did those guys just create? Like, this is so overly complicated, right? And it's that game of trade-offs that you're, you're trying to make. And if you asked me, you know, what is monetization all about? I think we all love the cloud. I do too. You're, when you shift to the cloud, you tend to forget that if you were never on the on-prem world, you used to sell software. And then at the end of the year, you did this magic thing outside of charging a huge amount of money up front, you charge a 20% annual maintenance, maybe 22%, sometimes 18 and everything in between. But then at the end of the year, you had version 18. And you would charge for that. And then when you go to the cloud, guess what you don't charge for anymore? Version 18. I mean, you just give all that crap away into the subscription stream and all that stuff that you're giving away, some of it is related to the subscription and a lot of it might be kind of worth more. And so the question is like, how do you insert a gate check into the product management function so that we kind of say, hey, this is support and maintenance and kind of what they're paying for, but this thing over here, like that's the seed of a new product or that's, that's really an optional add on. And how do we not create a mess in two years where somebody in sales says, well, Kevin, this is great software. I have 73 different modules and 43 different add ons and, it, and nobody can, can, you know, nobody has any idea what the heck they should buy. So it's the art of simplicity, the science of simplicity, but it's, it's really making sure you don't give away too much. And in our experience, most founders, most executive teams, I did it too, give away an enormous amount of value and don't get paid for it. So we're kind of on the mission to get people paid fairly. That's a great mission. I have kind of maybe two scenarios we can walk through. The first one being, let's use an example of a product or an engineering company where there's maybe a lot of different features, a lot of different experiments. That word beta is used very frequently. And maybe it looks a little bit like feature hell where there's just so many <laughs> things going on under the hood and there's a package and there's a, there's something that you're providing a service with this grouping of functionality and features to an end customer. How would you approach that situation as a consultant or how should that person approach that situation to analyze that mess of feature crud and determine what are the things that matter most? And are we taking advantage of those things the right way? There's probably two things that we could put into their own category because you mentioned beta. So as a tactical item, and again, we're going to go back to this intersection of pricing and selling. 
I just would never use that word again. I would, I would instead propose a term called early access. And early access is actually offered at a premium. You don't take in a gazillion people in early access, just a handful. And rather than giving them a price incentive to come into your beta, when you say beta, people go, oh, crappy software, this thing's going to be buggy. And my value as a customer, Kevin, is I'm going to give you my time. And then what happens is I go through the rodeo with you and, and there's been no talk of a budget, no talk of a sale, no, no now you've, you're excited because you got the software as a footprint in the door. And let's say I'm a Home Depot, right? You're like, oh, it's going to be amazing. You don't realize you're two years away from a transaction with those guys. So now you're in there, except this really bad thing is happening. And the really bad thing that's happening is they're kind of crapping all over your roadmap. Well, I need this. I need that. I need this. I need that. But there's very, there's very little transaction potential in the forward facing road ahead because nobody's, there's no executive sponsors. No, they, you know, there's been no talk of the actual transaction itself and on what basis are we going to pay, what package are we going to buy, and what does this look like now during the pilot. So early access just kind of spins that on its head. It's the same crappy software. It still has to be debugged, right? I mean, you're just, but the purpose of the pilot in, in my mind is you're to test your ability to extract a certain amount of net price for that package or that offer or that beta piece of software that we're saying is early access. And when you exit that early access program, you will charge a premium, you will get paid, and you are trying to understand the range of price points wrapped around this philosophy that you tell the early access participants, look, you'll never get hurt, Kevin, with us. If for some reason that you paid X and we went to the market at half X, I'll just extend your term. It will be as if everything will be, you will always be taken care of white guy. And of course, these become the sweethearts of the company moving forward, maybe the initial part of the customer advisory board. But that shift from moving away from beta to a paid early access program, I think is absolutely fundamentally crucial. Now you've probably heard the term product-led growth. Yes. Okay. So I think the thing to pay attention to there is sometimes if you do that too early and you gear your licensing and packaging and it's not ideal or not structured properly, it might be a really long time to get to scale and revenue, which will exacerbate the capital raising process. And I'm a big believer that an early access program and a handful of transactions, 10, 20, 50, 100, 250 grand services and software is just what the doctor ordered for investors to get really excited and for mm. you then to get into that stuff. And maybe at the, the, the moment in time that you activate that, just pay attention to what that means for cash flow. It reminds me of the customer-funded business model. You're leading with making sure it's profitable, make sure you the signals from the customers to showcase the traction, but you're also funding those growth investments with the capital that you're receiving from the customers. So it just inherently makes sense to grow. And then they ask for venture capital or for additional funding is to grow faster, right? That's because right. you have this proof. If you but need it, what you're saying is that you're gonna yeah, it. it's a time. Yeah, exactly. If you need it, you're going to pay handsomely for it. If you don't need it, you'll have people lined out the door to invest with you. One of the tricks, and so we would call it funding the roadmap. And, and during the early access program, you might need a feature that needs to be prioritized. And by the way, this is the main value prop of the early access participants is to say your value is you get a material footprint on our roadmap. We're going to listen to you 
And when you exit the early, our early access program, you're equipped with this thing called a competitive advantage. And, and that's, a that's a huge value add for the right kind of buyer who wants, who wants that at that time. So the, the value add that you're exchanging then says, well, I'm not your custom development partner, but of course I'm going to listen to you, Kevin, if you have the need for a certain kind of report or a certain kind of API call or a certain kind of this or a certain kind of that. I mean, it's going to get prioritized. So the product is going to meld around your operation much more closely than it would somebody else who's going to experience gaps because they're organized differently around their workflows and their use cases. And that sets the stage for funding the roadmap, because if you want to prioritize a feature, I'm going to charge you for that. And then we get to get paid for in the opposite one we talked earlier as a beta, well, you're just building all that crap for free with no promise that they'll ever use it. By the way, I, you know, I'm talking from experience, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, we all went through, or many of us went through traps like that. This is a wonderful lens to now proactively strategize your roadmap. Now, what if you are, that scenario I painted before, inheriting a bunch of those decisions, these beta, <laughs> these mess of features, if you're inheriting a bunch of that as an organization, you're coming in as a leader there or a consultant, how do you advise them to now evaluate that list to then make better decisions moving forward? Usually there's not a coherent one-stop shop place to go in the organization to see the complete list. It's it's a partial list, or maybe it's tribal knowledge, or maybe it's on the website, but when you go to the website, it's all this marketing speak. It's not, you know, that's seven features under that bullet point on the website page. And so there's this real gap and, and we would instead want you to look at, you know, value drivers not, and value drivers is just a fancy way of saying there's this capability that the company that you're selling to is trying to accomplish. And that could be delivered through one or many product features, or it could be delivered through one or many services or both. And building that map is crucial and important. And if you've ever done any sort of process decomposition work, you always run into this problem of, I have a high level activity and I have a low level activity. And often what you'll see when you put the list together is you have this thing called a reporting module. And then you have a thing called the ability to add a user defined field. And it's like, those are those, you know, one thing is really big on this table needs to be broken down a little bit. And this other thing is maybe too detailed needs to be summarized a little bit. And rationalizing that list in English with good thought process and good basic fundamental process decomposition skills to to look at what that list is so it's orderly and it's collectively exhaustive and they're not overlapped where if you count these two things they're really kind of the same thing it takes work it takes some thought process sometimes it takes help like what we do other times you can do it internally but getting that list is really important and then the second piece to the puzzle is don't ever bring your traditional marketing stack to a monetization exercise and what i mean by that is buying personas and other things. Those are, those are frameworks that are used to drive content, to build lead gen, to build the funnel, to understand in the sales process, who talks to who, who influences who, who's the decision maker, who's the budget, who holds the purse strings, right? That marketing stack is geared for those kinds of mechanics. Monetization is about value. It is possible that within an industry segment, two customers can experience value very differently. And it's also possible that across your standard SIC, 
two customers that maybe have the same word in their name, XYZ Lumberyard and Kevin's Lumberyard experience value almost identically, or maybe Lumberyard in, in category number one and healthcare Kevin's healthcare in category number two are almost identical. So how people take down value has nothing to do with firmographics, has nothing to do with employee size, has very little to do with the things that we attach in product marketing, which ultimately equip us with the ability to drive a target 100 list, which means you're like in query language, right? So how are all those databases built? Well, they're built with a name and a employee size and an industry segment and all this stuff, because there's a service provider or a technology behind the scenes giving you that list. But that's not, that doesn't describe how people use your software and get value from the software. And so the first thing you want to do is redefine your ideal customer profiles. And that means that they probably, what maybe what makes somebody ideal in the early access program is that they don't use your API level. Why? Because you haven't built it yet. And maybe in three months, what makes a customer ideal, they use your API layer in some way. Yeah. And so this, this, what I'm talking about is this very dynamic sort of refreshing of who it is that's ideal. And then there's frameworks that we use to kind of score those. And those give you a much on the ground, truth on the ground, who really is an ideal customer? What kind of service do they take down? I mean, there's tons of SICs and employee size and everybody goes, oh yeah, I'd love to have that company. Well, you'd love to have them until they're on your support call. And then you'll be, you know, crying a river with the pain and suffering that you'll go through with a customer like that. And I think we've all had those experiences. So getting really clear on that then says, well, now I understand my customer mix. And, and a customer mix again is not firmographics. Customer mix is what we're talking about here. And understanding your customer mix means that, that you understand how it changes, how fast it changes, and you understand how people are taking down your software and solving real problems and that you can produce what we call a class. A customer class is just a group of customers that experience value similarly and trying to solve the same problems. When you do that, then you can begin to exercise your judgment, which early on you may not have, but it's a product management function, I believe, that you would understand how your customer mix, represented by a dozen or so customers, uses the software, values these, you know, is this important to me? Is this not important to me? And that is the key ingredient for the underpinning of the packaging that you'll put together. And if you don't have the underpinning, and I'm sure you sat through these meetings, Kevin, then you're in a room and somebody says, I think we should have a pro, a basic and an enterprise, or I think we should have, and what they're doing is they're Babe Ruthing what the output of the packaging would be. But I think if you rewind and just get the inputs correct, it will tell you what the pack. But so many times we don't focus on the inputs. We just sort of, mm. everybody wants to know what's the best practice. Well, guess what? It's software. There is, there are some best practices in general, but what's best for you is very different than what's best for somebody else. Your software right. company, if I duplicated it and we had a mirror universe and everything about you was identical, your team structure, your staffing, and, but there was one thing that was unique about both of these mirror companies. And that is that their customer base is different, might be in the same SICs and similar, but the, the, what they're doing in the software and the rate at which they're doing that and the kinds of volumes that they buy and the kinds of products they take down are different. And that gives you the blood test of that software company, which by the way, is why you never copy a competitor's licensing, packaging, and pricing strategy. Cause I can promise you like I did 
somebody just made it up. A founder went out, read on a blog and said, well, Dharmesh Shaw and Brian Halligan, right? Charged by the number of contacts in the database. On the medium in 2021, I think it was Dharmesh wrote a piece about, you know, the pricing isn't really all that great. That's a publicly traded company. That's like a Boston sweetheart. Imagine what they could have been if they had got it right from day one. So it doesn't mean you still can't be successful. I think that what it means is if you get the ingredients and the inputs right, especially early on, it's great. And this is the other piece to the puzzle that I think happens in early access as well. Prior to that moment that you mentioned, you probably don't have enough data and enough track record and enough sales to have this idea of what all this would look like. And I would just tell you, you have to have a perspective. Pricing is not a democratic function. Customers do not want to pay you anything. In fact, our data would tell you they're happy with paying you slightly below your costs, provided you'll still answer the support line. If you don't answer the support line, they might be willing to pay a little bit more. But my point is that that, that perspective that you're developing in early access gives you all the keys to the puzzle or to the house, if you prefer, all the keys. My analogies need a little bit of work, Kevin. But it gives you all the, the, the pieces of the puzzle in order to figure out how you will be selling this, how you will be defending value, and most importantly, what your perspective on your value is. You know, my, my journey was I was selling, I had really long hair, longer than your beard, and I could bite it. And my family thought, you know, maybe I might be going a little hippie. I just, I literally, I could not afford a haircut. I was eating generic cereal. I, you know, the sense really mattered at, at age 20, Seven, I had $180,000 of credit card debt. I was scared mm -hmm. like you wouldn't believe. I'd look in the mirror some nights and I was like, holy, you know what? This is, this is like the real deal. Like I can go bankrupt. Like I don't know what that is, but that's really scary. And going through that journey and having that perspective can, can get you out of that kind of a scenario. And the reason that I mentioned that is is I was selling $2,500 software. And every time I went back into the spreadsheet, everybody else got paid except myself and our co-founder. And that was my switch over to sales. Cause I was like, I just can't keep doing this. I can barely afford rent, let alone like a, a night out or a dinner out. And so in a drive down, so I hired a sales coach who recorded all my calls for five years straight. He was amazing and it was embarrassing, you know, at the 14, 20 second mark, why did you say that you completely unraveled the deal? Like that was really stupid. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I didn't know. I'm going to go back and read some more books. And so in that drive to Atlanta, we had quoted a client at $15,000 and I went into the spreadsheet and I was like, this is a great client and I'm not going to get paid again. I was really frustrated. And the sales coach said, why don't you just try charging a hundred grand? And I was like, okay. So then in the meeting, I upped it to 125 because I was like, why not? Because he made up the number, so I'll make up the number. We lost that deal. But in that deal, that CEO said, Chris, it's yeah. not the price. It's the fact that you don't have a purchasing model that does. And he rattled off what it needed to do. So guess what we did? We went back and built the purchasing model. Our very next sale was 140 grand. I went from a 15,000. Now, I can tell you, if I asked our customer base at the time, Hey, yeah. Kevin, you know, what would you be willing to pay for this software? They would have been like, wow, about what we paid. Hmm. But here we went selling half a million dollar software after that. Just literally overnight. We just didn't know what we had created. We didn't understand the value. We didn't have a perspective. We were too focused on the mechanics, not on the value of what we created. So you can't 
dig through that feature list until you have this perspective from your customer's shoes. You got to take your shoes off first and see all the value that you're providing through their eyes. And the best way to do that, if you're going through that exercise and you're scratching your head, like, I don't know if you know your customer mix and you know that the ideal customer is in this case, the pilot with Home Depot, you pick up the phone and you call them and say, Hey, this feature, is this like a gotta have thing? Is it a night? And you ask them, you know, you engage them in a dialogue and our customer research would tell you, you don't need a lot of data for that. You really don't. You don't have to talk to a thousand people. You can talk to half a dozen and the pattern emerges. We had a team of anthropologists and other things that did research after six, seven interviews, you're going to see the pattern very clearly. It's going to tell you what you need to know if you ask those questions. I think that's such a great mindset shift that product tech companies need to take, it sounds like. And where you're positioned in the company that you're currently a managing partner of is helping to teach that in a way that is also offering software and services. I think that's a it's a wonderful intersection of sharing what you've learned with others, as well as doing exactly what you're, you're meant to be doing is to monetize that effort as well and not lose sight of, of what matters and the cost to produce that teaching and that software. I want to talk a little bit more tactically about that list. If you can give us a tactical a real world example, one positive and then one negative, meaning this is one that indicates some opportunity. And this is one that indicates like we need to kill it. The value drivers, I think the crucial piece to that is that they do align with some aspect of the, of the capability that the client or the customer is. So I think it goes back to that sort of hierarchy example. You know, I, I need to be able to report to the executive team is probably not you know, I need to be able to drive out some dashboard and an executive team is probably not a great value driver. Being able to see X, Y, E, you know, key performance indicator or KPI on the dashboard, probably okay. It's a level that there might be like a whole slew of those that need to be kind of specified and can be rolled up into a value driver that encompasses the half a dozen or whatever the key yeah. KPIs that your perspective says on your software that your audience of customers should be looking at and managing during the day. Take a dental practice, for example, you know, what dashboard's great, but like what, what's on there, you know, part of the problem with analytics is that an executive at Bamboo said it great before he retired. He said, you know, I have, I have a lot of data, I have a lot of dashboards and no information. So part of the perspective of trying to get out in those value drivers is to have a perspective like it's better. It's not maybe as ideal as I can put a hundred things on the dashboard as, you know, these so. six things. And okay. often I think when we build products, we try to enable all of it. And, and what's missing, I feel like from a lot of products is that perspective. You know, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of an application called mm -hmm. every dollar. It's a Ramsey budgeting tool for couples and things. And I love their UI. I love their UX. I've probably seen everything from Quicken to Simplify to, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. My wife and I have tried them all and they're great, you know, for tracking and keep everything on mm. the same page, but they're, they're all brutal in different ways. They're just brutal, especially <laughs> I could go on for days, but if you take a look at the UX and the design of every dollar, I think what makes it so brilliant is what they don't show you. What, what, like I could imagine their value drivers are very specific, right? Like you can tell in that product that they made decisions, right? It's really this thing here and it's presented in that way. And because there's a capability that we're trying to achieve here, 
And I think that capability of what that customer is trying to do in that moment, like not get confused or record an expense or whatever, that specificity level Mm -hmm. is really key. And the specificity level across all of those value drivers, again, need to be at that same kind of decomposition level that we talked about. You can't have high level, low level, otherwise it all blurs. It's like, I got this high level thing and then I got this low level thing. The high level thing kind of does cover the low level thing or the low level thing is kind of part of this other thing. And so that, that sort of enumeration and then stepping back and saying, okay, is it overlapped? And then kind of resettling and really spending your time wisely on settling that down so that you and the broader team, and when I say you, it could be a working team, like never take eight people through an exercise like this. It'll never get done. Take two or three people that you trust, produce a draft, and then let everybody else comment on it, right? So that that's kind of like in the world of budgeting, right? And if you listen to every dollar, you know, the, the guy who's really, or the gal who's really good at budgeting, create the budget. Don't drag the other person through that crap, you know? So create the draft and then everybody else, it's easier to edit than it is to create. And really kind of stewing in that for a while, I think is really important because those are the inputs. Now I can give you an example of the idea of concentrating on value because let's, we have, this is a real example. We have a a customer and they have rental software and that rental software services to manufacture, like think caterpillars and digging out big holes in your backyard and stuff that's rented for months at a time on a big remodeling project or a big build out of a building. It brings a lot of money in, right? And over the years, this family run business, which is now extraordinarily successful, also attracted this other marketing segment called wedding and event planning. Now this is inventory management software and online e-commerce kind of, you know, rent, rent your heavy equipment for the week. And if you ever used a truck or a car or rented that from Lowe's, that software is what's behind the scenes there. And it's interesting when you would stack those SICs or both of those industry segments. First, they're incredibly different, clearly wedding planning. I mean, come on, that has nothing to do really with digging out a pool in your backyard. And if you looked at the content they want to drive and the decision-making, mm-hmm. I mean, we could spend a year talking about all of their nuances and how they're so very different, but from a value perspective, they're actually almost identical because they each share a lot of similar needs and jobs that they need to have completed. Number one, inventory tracking. I might not have a gazillion forklifts, but I've got enough that I want to track them, but boy, do I have a gazillion pieces for the wedding this weekend, tables, chairs candelabras, mats, silverware. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And there's a, there's a lot of pieces if you're doing a lot of those events, right? You have a huge amount of inventory. So you have very similar needs to do inventory tracking and to rent, but you might not have to be on two different editions of the software. You can actually be on the same version of the software with maybe one nuance, which is as an optional component, maybe you need the maintenance module if you're doing the heavy equipment side, because you're not going to send a field tech out to go repair a candelabra. You're going to chuck it and replace it. Right. But you, but you're going to trust me, you're going to maintain that million dollar piece of equipment in the backyard. And so I think that the, the example I wanted to point out there is that things are a lot simpler than what you might think. And I think in engineering, we always kind of build things from the ground up, which mires us in the muck, which is important because great software, you know, sometimes is just as wonderful as changing the tab order of fields on a screen to make it easier 
and I can navigate with a keyboard and also my mouse. And so, you know, the, but the trick is in monetization, how, how can you simplify things? And I think our big aha over the now four decades that we've been doing this, and I wasn't here the whole time doing this, this practice started in 1982 and it was the first pricing consultancy in the world dedicated to B2B software, which is why I fell in love with it. Cause that's all the firm has ever done. And the methodology is all around nothing but B2B software. And I think that that gives you the perspective and us the perspective that customers are just a lot more alike than you realize, except that if you're engineering focused and I'm engineering focused too, we could spend a lot of time mucking around with why they're different. And, and I think if you can kind of reorient the audience around this idea of that example I just gave, there's tons of those examples. That, that then what happens is we don't have these a la carte and crazy pack, you know, this feature list that's a gazillion miles long. I mean, going back to the intersection of pricing and selling, I can tell you I've sold everything from $19 a month and I've been involved in sales transactions up to hundreds of millions of dollars through our customers. And I've also personally sold millions of dollars worth of enterprise software. That sort of intersection of the pricing and selling tells us that mm -hmm. if you make it more complicated, it will be more complicated dialogue. If we make it simple in that intersection, mm -hmm. then customers find it very easy to buy. And so I think one of the other things I'll share with you, just since you seem to love tactics is one of the yeah. things that just always irks me is when people embed their volume component in their package. You know, like if you buy the basic edition, it's two users, but if you go to professional, it's 10. And then if you go to enterprise, it's 25 or more. And if you need more than that, call us. What happens when I have six? I mean, what happens when I have everything in between, right? Of course, this is the disaster on the selling front, right? And so, you know, processing things like that differently are hugely important so that the packaging is brutally simple and, and brutally clear yeah, because the sales profession that I was taught is people are only going to buy on maybe one to three things max. And you can run this test tomorrow. Every product manager out there can just be like, Hey, Kevin, what do you want to buy? And just have them listed out. And if you're ever on the sales phone and you do that. You'll find that people will pop off, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. And then they'll struggle. Maybe they come up with a three and then boy, they really have to work to get to like four and five. So people are only buying on two or three things. So if they're buying on two or three things and you're showing them 700, you don't have a huge problem, right? Sometimes we just forget that somebody has to convert this strategy into English language so that somebody else can understand it who's not an engineer. And I think if you speak the world of customer classes, there's just, you know, customers more alike than you may realize if you speak the world of very simple packaging and the unit of measure that you're picking in the contract, the quantity field, what we call the licensing metric was also called the value metric back in the eighties. It's just the thing that is going to scale the list price. If you get that right, then sales, I think can be very easy. If you get that wrong, people love consumption, right? I love consumption. It's going to be great, except, you know, what happens when Kevin can't estimate what he's using because you're charging for millions of API calls and I don't know what that number is. Well, if I don't know what that number is as a buyer, <laughs> I'm not buying. It's very applicable to the SaaS model. What changes in a marketplace model? How does this approach to monetization change in, in a marketplace? Two sides of the marketplace, a user and they're transactional, right? It's not a subscription model. How does this methodology change within that monetization model. We don't do B2C, but in the B2B world, there are many flavors of that, but the, you know, sometimes that'll express itself as an actual marketplace in a platform, for example, 
So now you have to have the platform first and then you have to have the providers extending the platform like an open source or other things in order to have that kind of vibrant ecosystem. But in either way, like there has to be a monetization strategy or a hell of a lot of funding to start one side of the market, right? Right. right. The other way that it expresses itself is maybe in payments. Let's take that as an example. Payments is a component that you might be able to decouple from the main strategy. And that's a pretty popular space in the sense of doing high volume and you're taking a, maybe a little bit of margin that you can substantiate on top of that. And then it comes into a modeling game and it has a lot to do with volume and where people are buying. This is kind of what I think is the hallmark of great monetization is if you have that feature list that you described, then you might have a lot more customers because you have a lot more of a mature product. And then you get kind of stung straight head on with the monetization change, like, well, what am I going to do with all these customers that have paid on the old strategy and how do I get them to the new world? And that's not a PowerPoint, a modeling game. You got to be able to take those transactions in and look at those SKUs and the net price is paid. And you got to come at that very scientifically to be able to understand this is my new packaging, my new price points, and here's kind of how things are going to shift and who's going to buy what package. If we have new packaging, that's different. What assumptions do we make? How do we validate that? So that component, once you have that of, for example, the payments allows you to play a more advanced game of monetization. I can say, well, I could lower my price on one side and subsidize it on the other side. So maybe I have so much volume and smaller margins that I can maybe charge a little bit higher of a rate on the payment side, because I can argue that that package, that offer has some blended value in it with some services and other things. So it doesn't look like just a payment thing that looks like a commodity. And therefore, then I can play the game on the other side and I can maybe fund it or subsidize it or make it so affordable that I can get a huge amount of that one side of that problem in. And by the way, it's not just a two-sided problem. Sometimes it's a three-sided problem, right? There can be more than just two. But I think the question still is which side gets built out and at what rate and what is that licensing and packaging and pricing that goes along with that so that you can get that revenue in place or if you're hugely funded, you know, then you can maybe do them in parallel and other things. But either way, I would argue that having raised capital myself, you know, as soon as you take that OPM, other people's money, the fuse is lit. You might think I had, you know, everything changes. You can see that in the marketplace today with COVID and 08 market crash that I lived through with our software company. You really want to be on the run, not in a careless way, but like, a monetization strategy really needs to deliver very quickly, I think. And if it's, I'm building both sides and there's no revenue, well, that sounds great, you know, for a little bit, but just remember every month that goes by anxiety builds yeah. with the investor. So you do need to generate something yeah. from the investment relatively earlier rather than later. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It sounds like with the marketplace, you're balancing the needs of the ecosystem or that platform, or this market, this two-sided or multi-sided market based on the current situation where it needs to get more resources. It's like a balance beam, right? <laughs> like you're kind of focused on yeah, this you want to, I mean, you're going to build your beachhead yeah. of where you're going to, where you're going to get that right. first tranche of revenue in and get everybody excited. And the other thing that you're bringing up is, you know, a monetization strategy is not a static thing. You know, this, this is the other comical thing about you know, competitors is people will look and be like, well, I just want to have packaging like Salesforce. Well, they're in version like 700 <laughs> of their model and they're huge. So I wouldn't copy yeah. that because you're not publicly traded and right. you're not huge. And this is like V1, right. right? So people always forget there's like this iteration on what all the other competitors are doing and they have different, different structures, et cetera. But when you copy what somebody else is doing or try to force fit it, what you don't realize is that you are copying their blueprint of risk. 
You just don't know what the blueprint looks like. We had a marketing meeting the other day and somebody asked me a question about, what do you think about, you know, competitors? Honestly, I don't care what the competitors are doing. I really don't. I mean, I care what our customers need. I care what our customers value. I care about those things, but I don't care that people are going out there and doing willingness to pay studies because I know it doesn't work. I live that world. I don't want to do that. I have no interest in that. So I think as a general rule, especially in early access, and then when you have the feature list a million miles long, you stay grounded in the reality of your customers because they're different. They might share an SIC with a competitor's customer, but they're your customers with with their unique usage and their unique jobs to be done and their unique work processes. And the list goes on and on. And if you stay true to that, you have all the answers that you need within your own customer base, within your own data, invoice transaction data, and with your own usage data. And that gives you everything that you need to come out with a wonderful monetization strategy that you just know you want to iterate on. And you're going to iterate very quickly coming out of early access. And then when you have a gazillion features, you'll just iterate more slowly. This has been an amazing conversation. I'd love to leave the listeners <laughs> this week with homework based on this, this discussion. Let's reflect a little bit and let's see what we can provide as some tangible next steps for our listeners this week that they could apply in their day-to-day. I'll go first and then I'll quiz you on this. A very easy one to put into action here. One of the first points we touched on, shift the mindset of beta to paid early access. That is super critical. That is the the start to this journey of monetization as a strategy. If you think about the approach to roll out products in this way, you're already starting to think in the way that will position you better in the future. So Chris, what would you have? I think the one that I wish somebody would have told me early on is what's your philosophy of pricing? How do you really want to treat customers? I had this industry event and I didn't know what I didn't know. And in our world, you had design systems or a bunch of them. You had our ERP modules. You can configure those a bunch of different ways. And you have 40 different accounting systems that we could talk to. So what are the odds that somebody would buy the same thing? And then in our software, you had catalogs. You had to carry certain manufacturer catalogs and suppliers and think interior and exterior products. And son of a gun at this industry conference, two customers literally bought exactly, they had the exact, I mean, I was so cocky, Kevin. I was like, oh, we'll always be able to explain this away, right? And two people bought the same thing. And one person paid double. I remember I was at the Richard Petty driving experience in Charlotte and I got out of the car and I saw them both at the table and I could see the expression on one. And I thought, oh, yeah, like they compared prices. And uh, I'll never forget how I'm, I'm, it's like crystallized like yesterday of one of my biggest disappointments in business was that just seeing that, feeling that, the energy of that. And I just thought, I'm not doing that anymore. I never want to be in this situation again. And so philosophically, we all put customers at the center of the universe and they're amazing. But then like two people buy the same thing and they pay wildly different prices. And is that really like, are you really walking the walk of treating customers fairly? Because that doesn't sound right. Pricing it can be a weapon, but pricing can also be a thing of power and good. And if you do your homework right, you can totally gear a model with expert packaging, price points that are transparent and reasonable. And this idea of the old guard where we obscure our list prices, obscure our net prices, and you know we see all that today. The next generation collaborative, they want transparency. They're not mm-hmm. going to stand for that crap. Yeah. So The sooner that you can staple out of early access, that you can staple that pricing to your forehead. And here's what it looks like at 10 units and a million units. And here's how discounts are earned. And we don't give you discounts. You earn them through your commitment size. And you have that programmed. You'll absolutely crush the people and the competitors that we Mm. see it over and over and over again for the ones that are obscuring and playing the game. Nobody, the biggest complaint when I was on the Art of Procurement podcast is that procurement, you know, buying software is worse than buying a used car. 
and I have a cousin, Vinny, and he's a great guy, but imagine buying a used car from Vinny, right? Like whatever that means. But like, it's not a fun experience. You're going to be taken advantage. You know, you're going to play this whole rodeo and game. And I, I just want to go in and buy a car and be treated fairly, right? That is actually worse from the reported buyer's experience in B2B software. When And so guess what they do to combat that? They construct RFP processes. And guess what happens to our sales process? It's like somebody poured glue in them and then the sales cycles extend. And then as a rep, like how will you ever be trusted? How will you ever be trusted if you sold a deal and your next call, somebody calls in and says, thanks for the bid but I talked to Rebecca yesterday and you gave her an additional 10% off. And now if you've ever been in that call, I've been on that call mm. personally, you're dead in the water. You've lost all credibility and all trust. So my big takeaway is before you do any of the stuff we talked about, <laughs> sit down and ask yourself the question, what is your philosophy of pricing? How do you want ultimately to treat customers and how do you want people to see your brand? And are you okay? Some customers, not of our customers, but some software companies are totally okay. Hey, if you're in manufacturing, you pay X, but if you're in pharmaceuticals, you're killing it, you pay 10X. And they say, that's the way we're going to gear it. I, that's not anything that we would ever recommend, but Tons of companies do that. The ad tech space is very riddled with that. And I, that is, is something that I've, is, is a constant battle, especially with the hold co-agencies. If you're familiar with the space, it's a bit messy. Yeah. So that speaks to me a lot. You, if you treat them fairly, it's harder. It's harder work, but, but you're better off for it because that means you have a better understanding of your customer and you know how to balance the different usage and the different use cases. Thank you so much, Chris, for spending your time chatting. I enjoyed it. Thanks yeah, for having me. Really learned a lot. I really appreciate you. And I know our listeners will have a lot of good insights from it. Before we leave, is there anything that you want our listeners to know about you? Maybe how to reach you or things you want to promote or anything to plug? Visit softwarepricing.com. And for those that are interested, they can reach out and request access to the resource center. There's tons of articles and other stuff out there to read up on all the stuff that we talked about here today and to reflect and develop your perspective of how you want to treat customers in the end. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It looks like we finished up our coffee here. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.